The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 28 of Baptism, Paragraph 4. Not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptised. Hello everyone, and welcome to today's episode of This We Confess, As we continue our journey through chapter 28 of the Confession, we get to a rather thorny subject. Indeed, there is perhaps no subject more likely to produce much heat rather than light than the subject of who is to be baptised. In Northern Ireland today, and indeed throughout the world, the Church of Jesus Christ is often at each other's throats over this very issue. And today it might surprise you, but I want to begin by stating that Reformed churches have always baptised adults who profess faith and obedience unto Christ. It is that very statement that is made at the beginning of paragraph 4, that we baptise those who profess faith and obedience unto Christ. And so if you are an adult who has never been baptised before, and if you belong to a Reformed Presbyterian congregation, you will find that the minister of that congregation will be delighted to talk to you about baptism. The common misconception is that Reformed churches only baptise babies. They do a little bit of christening, as it's often called. But that is simply not the case. Reformed churches have always baptised adults who have never been baptised before and who have come to saving faith in Jesus. In Mark 16, the Lord tells us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And whoever believes and is baptised will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And then later in Acts chapter 8, Philip runs into the Ethiopian eunuch. He is a man who is considering the things of God and he comes to saving faith and is baptised. Adults who have never been baptised before, who come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, should be baptised. And indeed it is, as I sometimes say, not in an antagonistic way, but simply because it is true. The Reformed Church, the Presbyterian Church, is a true Baptist church. Presbyterians baptise adults who have never been baptised before and who have come to saving faith in Jesus. So far, so uncontroversial. But the second part of paragraph 4 is where the difficulties often come. Because as Reformed Christians, as Presbyterians, we also believe that the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptised. Now before we go any further, let me please remind you 
that as Presbyterians we do not believe that baptism saves the child. As Presbyterians we do not practice christening. We do not make the child more like Christ. As Presbyterians, we do not believe that baptism somehow improves the child. It makes the child more healthy, more godly. It will set the child up for the rest of its life. All of these are myths associated with our position. We are absolutely opposed to anyone who says that baptism saves. And certainly I do not know any colleague in the Reformed Church who practices such a baptism. Whereas we pour the water, somehow we believe that the child is on its way to glory. All of these are myths. Now whilst we have been unfairly criticised over many years now for our position, we have brought a lot of difficulty on ourselves. Some colleagues do indeed baptise any child that comes through the door. Perhaps the parents are not married. Perhaps the parents do not believe. Some colleagues over time have got the reputation of being prepared to even baptise your cat. My friends, this cannot be so. Our confession makes it abundantly clear that only those who come in saving faith are to have their children baptised. The faith of one or both believing parents must be evident and those parents must be married. And so any Reformed Presbyterian congregation who does not abide by this, then they are guilty of going against their confession. As Presbyterians, we happily baptise the children of one or both believing parents. But it is at this point that our critics will often ask us, where can we find such a verse to support our position? Where in the New Testament is any child baptised? Where can we find texts to underline what we claim to be true? Baptists, after all, would argue that baptizo always means to immerse, and throughout the New Testament, we see full immersion baptisms of adults. My friends, we have to admit that our position does not depend on a proof verse that shows a child baptised, for such a verse is beyond our reach. However, this works both ways. Baptist churches will happily baptise teenagers on profession of faith, even though the only people we meet in the New Testament who are baptised are adults. This is the simple reality. Whenever we see people baptised in the New Testament, they are adults. So we would also say to our Baptist brothers and sisters, where is your proof text for baptising teenagers? Where is your proof text for baptising anyone who is not an adult. But such an activity of debating proof texts is a zero-sum game. It can work both ways. However, we do not point to a proof text, rather we point to the full sweep of Scripture. For Reformed Christians understand the Bible covenantally. And so any discussion with our Baptist brothers and sisters on this issue should not begin with proof texts, but rather a discussion of covenant. For if you do not understand covenant, then you will not understand the Presbyterian position on baptism. We have spoken many times in this podcast about the issue of covenant, but let me just remind you quickly once again. In eternity past, the three persons of the Godhead freely entered into the covenant of redemption. The Father chose a people for salvation. The Son promised to come and to die for those people. And the Holy Spirit would call those people to saving faith in the Son. Here is the covenant of redemption. 
And then in the beginning, with Adam, God willingly entered into the covenant of works. And Adam was promised everlasting life on condition of his perfect personal obedience. Adam, of course, fell and the covenant of works lay in tatters. Humanity was once able to keep the covenant of works, but have now lost that ability. And in the beginning, in Genesis 3, God preaches to Satan, promising a child who will come to crush the serpent's head. Here we see the covenant of grace, whereby the Son would come and lay down his life as a ransom for many, and all who would receive him would be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is this covenant of grace that is verbalised to Abraham in Genesis 17 and verse 7, where the Lord promises, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And as scripture interprets scripture, the Apostle Paul would be able to say in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 9, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then in verse 14 of that same chapter, In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. It is clear here that the Scriptures speak to one another, and it is clear that there is continuity between the Old and the New Testament. And it is this that the Presbyterian position stands. We look at the Scriptures and we do not see one plan for Israel and another plan for the Church. We look at the scriptures and we do not see a covenant that only begins in the Gospel of Matthew. Instead, we look at the scriptures and in the book of Genesis, we see the covenant of redemption played out. We see the covenant of works in tatters and we see the covenant of grace proclaimed by the Lord and announced to Father Abraham. And so when we as Presbyterians speak about the new covenant, We do not mean that it is absolutely brand new. The new covenant is the covenant of grace. The new covenant is the covenant made with Abraham, with all the types and shadows removed. Christ has come, and Christ has shown in full glory and splendour what the covenant of grace was all about. And so, as Reformed believers, we do not believe that the new covenant starts in Matthew, But the new covenant, the covenant of grace which Christ has come and fulfilled perfectly, well, it has been in place from the very beginning. So the covenant of grace, the new covenant, isn't brand new. And the church did not begin on the day of Pentecost, but rather we look to Adam and Eve as the first members of the church. They were given coverings by the Lord. They were received back into fellowship. And their son Abel is described in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith. So the church finds its roots in the book of Genesis. The covenant of grace finds its roots in the book of Genesis. The gospel finds its roots in the book of Genesis. And all of this continues throughout the Old Testament and into the New with a wonderful and blessed continuity. And this continuity is of great importance when it comes to the sacraments. You see, the church in the Old Testament had two sacraments. They had circumcision and they had the Passover meal. And here today, the church, after Christ's return to glory, has two sacraments. Today we have baptism and we have the Lord's Supper. 
Both sacraments speak to each other throughout the pages of Scripture, and we see in both sacraments evidence of the one that was past and the one that was to come. We see a continuity in the sacraments given to the Church of Jesus Christ. And indeed, in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 11 to 12, we read that our circumcision is baptism. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And so for a Baptist brother or sister to claim that baptism has got nothing to do with circumcision, well, we must reject their contention. We see a continuity in the scriptures, and we see a continuity in the church, and we see continuity with the covenant of grace, and we see a continuity in the sacraments. Christ has come, and so no longer do we circumcise, no longer do we see blood shed, no longer do we cut off the foreskin, because Christ's blood has been shed, Christ has been cut off on our behalf, and so now, instead, in light of Christ's coming, we baptise. However, even though the sign has changed, the recipients of the sign remain the same. We baptise those who have come to saving faith in Jesus and have never been baptised before. And just as in the Old Testament, as children played a part in the covenant community and received the sign of the covenant, so too in the New Testament do our children receive the sign of the new covenant. The covenant of grace fulfilled by Christ with the types and shadows removed. And that sign is now baptism. My friends, I fully understand when our Baptist brothers and sisters point the finger and declare us to be overcomplicating matters. But I would hope you would see today that it is not an overcomplication here, but rather we are doing our very best to take the whole sweep of Scripture seriously. As Reformed Christians, we understand the Bible covenantally. We take it seriously from Genesis to Revelation, and we believe it to be one story, not a multitude of stories, but the one story of the Church of Jesus Christ, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I would put to you, what would Peter's hearers have thought on the day of Pentecost if Peter had come and preached a gospel of discontinuity, a gospel that told these men and women that their children were now excluded? Peter stood and preached to Jewish people on that day. And indeed, most of the converts in those early days after Christ's ascension were Jews. They were from a Jewish background. And yet Peter, at no place, tells them that their children no longer have a place in the covenant community. Peter nowhere tells these men and women that their children are now outside the camp. Instead, at Pentecost, Peter urges them in Acts 2 and verse 38 onwards, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The Gospel continues in the New Testament, but it doesn't begin there. And in Abraham, we realise that he is the father of all who will believe, both Jew and Gentile alike. There is continuity. Paul says in Romans 4, 
He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul's point is that Abraham is the father of faith to those from a circumcised background like the Jews and for those who come uncircumcised like the Gentiles. Abraham was part of the one plan of God, part of the one church of Jesus Christ and Abraham was part of the movement of God to bring peace to Jew and Gentile by the blood of Jesus, by tearing down the dividing wall of hostility and to make the one olive tree. The wild branches of the Gentiles have been grafted on, but the tree is one, not two. There are not multiple paths of salvation and multiple peoples of God, but instead there is the church of Jesus Christ and the sign given to it is circumcision And the sign of circumcision was applied to the children of believers just as the sign of baptism, which now has replaced circumcision, is also applied to the children of believers. No wonder Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 14 that the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean But as it is, they are holy. Paul here doesn't mean that the faith of a wife will save the whole household. Paul doesn't mean that the faith of a husband will save the whole household. But the presence of a believing parent in a household is of spiritual significance. And in such a home, the children of that place are seen as set apart for the Lord. Not yet saved. By grace, they will come to know Christ as their saviour. But a believing husband, a believing wife, or both of them, means that that home is a very significant place indeed. And therefore, throughout the New Testament, whilst we do not see children baptised, we do see household baptisms. And it would be the Reformed position that it would be incredibly unlikely that those household baptisms did not include children. And so, my friends, we do not argue proof texts. Such an approach gets us nowhere and usually just ends up in shouting matches between Christians who should consider each other brothers and sisters. Instead, the Presbyterian position centres around the word covenant. And if you understand the Bible covenantally, And if you receive the teaching of the Reformed Church, which speaks of the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace, then it is that point, and only that point, that we can begin to speak about baptism. But my final point today would be this, that the New Testament is not less than the Old. It seems strange to us as Reformed Christians that our Baptist brothers and sisters argue for the exclusion of children now that the New Testament has come. But if children were part of the covenant community in the Old Testament, why would they now be excluded in the New? It makes no sense. 
and therefore the position that states that infant baptism is something that should have been thrown out at the Reformation must be rejected. Infant baptism is not of Rome, and infant baptism is not superstitious nonsense, and infant baptism is not a reason to raise your eyebrows and question the salvation of the person who is defending it. I today argue quite simply that infant baptism is biblical. That infant baptism depends not upon two or three proof texts, but instead on the covenant of grace. And today I argue that the New Testament is not less than the Old, but because of Christ, we now see the covenant of grace in all of its glorious reality. And the promises of that covenant are for you and I and for our children. As always today, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. Who are the two groups of people baptised in the Reformed Church? Question 2. When it comes to baptism, give an example of why plain proof texts is not a good idea. Question 3. What were the three covenants discussed in today's episode? Name them and explain them. Question 4. What did I mean when I stated that the new covenant was the covenant of grace without the types and shadows? And question 5. What is meant when we speak of the continuity of the scriptures? That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn. And until next time, this we confess.